This week, Ellie and I sit down with Eleanor Hyde, executive producer of Unwell, a Midwestern Gothic mystery. And we're talking about what all that means. What does it mean to be Midwestern Gothic? What's Gothic? Oh, for God's sakes, what's the Midwest even? A fantastic conversation between two smart, charming people. Oh, and I was there too. All of that's coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. This week's interview is with the stellar Eleanor Hyde, one of the producers behind Heartlife NFP's Unwell, a Midwestern Gothic mystery. It's always such a treat to talk to Eleanor as her friend, but it was a special privilege to interview her for the show. My colleague Elena Fernandez-Collins and I talked with Eleanor about the incredible sound design of the show, the casting process, and the way it impacted the show's writing, what Eleanor is afraid of, and acknowledging the land that we live on. Many kudos to Eli McElveen, our skillful senior interviews producer. If you'd like to hear the extended cut, you can become a subscriber to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. Okay, let's take a listen to the interview. Eleanor, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Hi. Hi. What a pleasure to have you aboard. How are you? Uh, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm really happy to be here. We're happy to have you here. Okay, so... I, I want you to guide me through this, because I feel like I have a little insight into the origins of Unwell. I don't know if Jeffrey's told you about this before, but but they, their partner Betsy, Dave Kitzberg, Stephen Poon, and I all used to get together to work on this concept album that was about the Midwest and the last, like, the last wild locomotive and a dream-stealing baroness, and we were arguing about what Midwesternness is. Mm-hmm. Does that, But that's just, like, my limited facet from when I used to live in Chicago you know, and I was working on Our Fair City, and, like, this was the the nascent, like, next big thing that Jeffrey uh, and Betsy and Clayton and then you were starting to talk about. So that's, like, my my little twisted mirror into what it is, what, yeah. or my window into what it is. What is your version of the origin myth <laughs> of Unwell? That's a great question. So I think for some context, in case people don't no. Unwell is made by the same team that made the show Our Fair City. And so this story of where Unwell originates from overlaps with the ending of Our Fair City. And I was a very serious fan of Our Fair City for a number of years before I got recruited onto the team. And so... My entry point into this was that I had been doing a little side project with some of the Arthur City team for a thing, which I won't get into because I could talk about that for too too long. That would be a side conversation. Um, An immersive theater piece, right? Yeah, we, just we were say, trying right? to build a game set in the world of Arthur City. It was the whole thing. Um, and Jeffrey asked if I would be interested in joining the team as uh, as basically their their co-producer. And we went out and had coffee and sat down and like had a nice long talk about it. And I found myself and so I that I ended up saying yes. And and at the time <laughs> Jeff, Jeff was basically like, you know, we're we're ending this current project. I am looking for a partner, a producing partner to start the next project with. It's very early. I only have like a couple of really, you know, super beginning ideas of what I think it looks like. And I want to put a team together to start building this world. And at the time, what I remember most clearly was Jeff describing this idea of the big empty house in the middle of nowhere in Ohio. And Jeff um, went to college in Ohio and spent quite a bit of time living in rural Ohio after college. And so the setting in Ohio really comes from Jeff. And we started with that seed, but in large part, the world of Unwell was built really collaboratively with Jeff and me and our four writers. We recruited this the, these four writers to come work with us and we spent an entire summer series of meetings over the course of a summer talking about like 
what do we want to what story do we want to tell? Um, so let's give let's give some names to those writers, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Because that's Jim McDaniel, Jessica Wright Buha, Bilal Dardai, and Jess Best. Jessica Best, yeah. And yeah, so we spent an entire summer, the six of us, with just a lot of post-it notes, uh, kind of putting together our ideas of like, what are the stories that we want to be telling? Who are the characters that we want to be able to, you know, showcase? What's important to each of us uh, in a story like this? And from Mm -hmm. there, it kind of started to take shape. Um, So in large part, I think there are, at this point, in hindsight, it's hard for me to pull apart where specific ideas came from on that team. But, you know, for example, I would say Jim is probably in large part responsible for the central plot point of the childhood divorce and what it's and it kind of what it's like to be an adult whose parents got divorced when you were young and rebuilding that relationship that Lily and Dot have. And uh, Bilal, I just remember Bilal bringing this thought at one point about like the way in which in the rural Midwest, there is a way in which like wide open spaces can be even scarier than like tight cramped conditions. Like often we think of haunted spaces as being like enclosed, but like the, the hauntedness that you can get from like standing in the middle of a field and there's no one else there. And it's just the open sky. Um, Just Buha, Jessica Buha. I remember bringing at one point this idea of like, what I've come to think of as the trap house, but the idea that um, I remember her asking this question of like, what does it mean? What does it look like for something to be haunted and yet so beautiful that you really want to be there? And that tension between like uh, something being haunted, but also like, like compelling and want to, and making you want to stay and be part of it. Um, so lots of different stuff from lots of different directions and slowly baking into kind of a a, a, a cake, a whole idea that actually holds together. <laughs> so as someone who was originally from Massachusetts, but who has yes. taken Chicago into her heart, Eleanor, what is Midwesternness? That is a great question. You know, there's been a couple of moments in this process where various people on the team have gotten into a little... Uh, arguments about like what counts as Midwestern, uh, which is, I don't know, I think it's just kind of silly. Um, I will say that being a transplant to the Midwest, there is a, and, and to be fair, the city, (laughs) the urban Midwest, very much not the rural Midwest, but there is a sense of how communities form in this part of the country that to me feels really different than where I grew up. Um, I grew up in Boston. I first moved to Chicago when I was 18 to do a gap year before college. Went to college outside New York, spent some time living in upstate New York, and then have now been in Chicago for about 12 years. And there's a there's a focus on community and sort of how we take care of each other that I, at least for me, I have experienced living in the Midwest, which I just value very highly. Um, and I think is very powerful. Uh, I think one of the things that I've been really interested in as we think about that question and we start, and we are trying to write this show is I think there's a way in which often the Midwest is represented as like the real America, which I you hear that about a lot of places actually, and it's kind of, I mean whatever it's kind of dumb, but there is this quality of like there's a an archetype about what the real American Midwest is all about that. I mean I think there's truth to that archetype, but it's not the whole picture. Like, is the urban Midwest real America, you know, in that <laughs> right, in right. that formulation? Yeah, exactly. Like, is Chicago real America? Yeah, well, <laughs> 
right. That's exactly kind of my point. Like the the picture of what the real American Midwest is is actually like pretty limited. And I think we've been really interested as, you know, some of us native Midwesterners and some of us transplants to be able to kind of examine that picture and go like, how do we take that archetype and make it a little closer to our own experience, real lived experience? I don't know if I really answered your question. I really like living out here in Illinois. It's great. Oh, no, you absolutely <laughs> did. I never want to leave. Yeah. yeah. Actually, my mom is from Southern Illinois. Um, yeah. She grew up in, in rural Southern Illinois in this tiny town called Godfrey. Um, so I, I when I listen to Unwell, I, 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 I do get this vibe that I get from my mom and from, from visiting my grandmother who still lived there um, throughout my childhood. This very, like, isolated like cornfields everywhere kind of situation. Um, and in the way that, that that is built around that. Yeah. And for me, there's honestly a lot of parts of this story that evoke for me, my experience living in upstate New York, um, that I think the, a lot of those communities in upstate New York, they're not the Midwest by any means, but have a similar feeling to them that this sort of mm-hmm. rural America, this small town experience is, um, ubiquitous in a lot of ways, actually. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like, and, and David uh, as well, uh, feels that especially in discussion of political cohorts in the United States, Midwestern has come to mean white, as though vast mm-hmm. communities of color do not exist in that region of the country. So can you tell us, in as much as you feel comfortable, about the, the writing and the casting and the acting decisions that were made in Unwell to counter this notion? Totally. Um, so I think it's important to say for those of you who are folks who are listening who, you know, can't see me or haven't met me, um, I'm white. So that's, I feel like, important context for all the things I'm going to say after this. <laughs> um, so, yes, I think that was a really important piece of our conversation around what do we feel like it means to tell a story about America? you know, there is a part of this story we're telling that is like, we're telling an Americana story. And we wanted to interrogate who gets to be part of that story. Um, So it's always been important to us as a producing team and as a writing team to have a diverse group of people in that story. Um, So I kind of want to talk a little bit about the casting process because I think this is an interesting thing to like pull the curtain back on. Um, So we wrote almost all of season one before we cast anybody except Marsha Harmon, who plays Dot. Um, Marsha Harmon was in (laughs) Our Fair City. And as we were writing this, yeah, as we were writing this script, I remember having a moment where we kind of all looked at each other and I was like, this is a really hard role we're writing for Dot. And I think we should give it to Marsha. So, uh, so, so something that something that Heather dug up during research for this interview was a review of a New Leaf show from 2011 called Burying Miss America, uh-huh. which starred Marsha Harmon as one of two siblings in a small Nebraska town burying their mother. And now, eight years later, here's Marsha, like not not inhabiting the role of that that same character, the mother that she's burying in the first play, but like approaching something similar, right? Like yeah. a, a a woman in middle age confronting mortality. Uh, how long have you known Marsha? Like, <laughs> tell me about the this like moment of of realizing like, oh, Dot is for Marsha. Yeah. Okay. Don't let me forget to go back to the rest of the casting story. But yeah, let's talk about how let's talk about Marsha Harmon for a moment because I'm happy. Just to a do quick Marsha sidebar. Yeah. So. Um, Marsha and I have known each other since, for, since like 2010, I think. Um, when I, around 2010, I joined New Leaf Theater. Uh, New Leaf Theater was a small storefront theater company here in Chicago that had a producing ensemble of seven people. I think I was Maybe it was six before me, and then I became the seventh. I don't remember. Um, And Marsha had been in that company for, I think, five or six years at that point. Um, So in the time that I was part of New Leaf, uh, leading up to the company's closing, I did four productions with that team, and Marsha was in three of them. Um, So 
she and I had done a lot of work together. And notably, um, the last production that we did as a company, that New Leaf did as a company, was a production of Arcadia that Marsha was in, which Jeffrey Gardner was Jeffrey Gardner was the dramaturg on. If you know anything about Arcadia, it is a show that requires a lot of research to do it well. It's <laughs> so complicated. And yeah. Jeffrey Gardner is the best dramaturg I have ever worked with. <laughs> um, like, just... You know, we'd have these rehearsals and people would be like, what does this math equation mean? They mentioned offhandedly in this scene. And like 30 hours later, Jeffrey would be like, here's five pages on what that math equation means. It's incredible. <laughs> um, yeah. So Jeffrey cast Marsha in Our Fair City after working on Arcadia with us. Um, so by, you know, circuitous route that's kind of how we all ended up working together but uh so marsh and i have been friends for a long time and she is just an incredibly talented nuanced performer um i have gotten the great pleasure to be able to see her do a lot of different things and she has an incredible empathy that she brings to the work that she does as an actor. So yeah, so Bearing Miss America was a play that it was a two-hander that it was like the whole set was basically like a giant coffin and like a big coffin and these the, this brother and sister, you know, un, hashing out all of their kind of family drama as they're putting their mother to rest. And um and you know, there's a lot of tragedy embedded there. And I think we did a lot of talking actually for a number of the roles in this show about the fact that like sort of by accident, I think we've ended up writing a story in Unwell that like we know there are some places this story is going to go that are going to be deeply sad. Like I'm not, I don't think that's giving anything away. Like there's just some like given circumstances of what the story includes (laughs) that I'm like, there's gonna be moments that are just kind of hard and being able to find people to do that with us that we knew had the capacity that it's like the first, you know, six or so episodes that are out, like a lot of it is kind of like light and fun, but like, we know that there's some stuff coming that it's like, we need a cast that can do that work and go to those hard, harder, more emotional places. Um, And I trust Marsha. I know Marsha can. So yeah. Yeah. So that that brings us back to the larger casting. Okay, yes. Okay, so we so we wrote most of season 1. We had Marsha in that role as Dot and we knew we knew we wanted to work with her in that role. And we also knew that we had as a priority putting together a cast that was diverse in in a a number of different ways. We knew we wanted to have a character in the show who was non-binary. That was a thing that we as a team had all identified as a priority. And we knew we wanted to have a racially diverse cast. That said, we did not write... We wrote only a really small number of the characters in the show to be specifically a given race or gender identity. So, uh, like, we knew that we wanted Lily to be a woman because we thought the mother-daughter relationship was interesting. There's some uh, kind of people of uh, of power in the town that we were like, it's interesting if this one's a man and it's interesting if this one's a woman for reasons. But there was a list of three or four characters that we kind of put out in the world and said, this person could be a man or it could be a non-binary person. This person could be a woman or it could be a non-binary person. And we put that out in our casting call. And we very actively encouraged all of our people submitting of all races and colors to submit for whichever role they were interested in. Um, really with the only exception being Marisol. We knew we wanted Marisol to be Latina and also then Spikes, her niece. 
So we went into casting and we saw a lot of different people in a lot of different roles of, of different, you know, genders and races. And it was really interesting talking to folks as we were doing that, that like, uh, I had a couple of the actors comment, like, you know, it's so common for me to come into an audition and like everyone in the room looks like me. Like, like I'm, I'm reading for this role and like everyone else is my same demographic and to, and they were like, it's really fascinating to come into an audition space and be like, I have no idea who else in this room is reading for the same role as I am because it, you know, we don't have as radio and as audio, we don't have, we also don't have to be casting in a really clearly defined age range either. Um, that, you know, there's a lot of skew in like our actors actual age versus the age they're playing on the show. Right, like Marsha is nowhere near the yeah. the age that she is portraying. Marsha and Shariba are closer to this, like as as actors, as people in the world, are closer to the same age than I think either of them are to the age of the character they're playing. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So uh, so we so we we did this thing where we wrote the season and then we cast people into it. And I will say that I don't, I would, I wouldn't necessarily say that that is like the right way to do it or the wrong way to do it, but it's the way we did it. And I think some really interesting stuff came out of it. So like, Abby was not the character I expected to be our non-binary character, but they are. And it works really well. And in large part that happened because the non-binary actors we were talking to and reading for the roles came in and said, that's the role I want to read for. That's the role I'm in. I read the sides. I read the character description. That's the role I'm interested in. And so that was really cool. And I found that really interesting. Um, you know, we didn't, we didn't write Lily specifically to be black or African-American, but Shariba was just so outstanding in the role that we were like, okay, that's what that is. Well, we're going to, now we will write the show to, to support that. Um, and so it's been interesting as we, we've, we're actually now at the kind of the tail end of writing season two. And as we've been in the process of writing season two, we're doing a lot of talking and thinking about um, now that we have people in these roles, how does it, how does it impact the story and what, what's the same or what's different about the choices we're making now that we know who's embodying these, these characters. I think that was, that's like one of the most crucial decisions that someone can make when, when you're casting is to then make sure that your script is malleable enough to fit what needs to be changed and that you are flexible enough in writing. Yeah. I think that's really admirable. I, I'm really pleased with it. And I, I, it's important to me. I feel like I want to tell that story in a way that doesn't by any means negate. I think there are lots of other stories out there that are written to, for example, like very specifically be about a black experience or about, you know, a Latino experience. Um, and I don't want by any means for it to sound like I wouldn't want to also maybe work on a project like that. But for this project, I think it was really effective and powerful for us to go, we're going to build a community for this town. We want the community be, to be diverse, um, but it doesn't necessarily need to mean that like this person has to be white and this person has to be black and so on. Yeah. So we, we've talked about, uh, you know, this idea of, of Midwesternness and how you are countering, you know, falling into like using certain traits and then countering certain discussions about what it means. So how do you translate this, these ideas of Midwesternness into this notion of Midwestern Gothic? So what, what elements of Midwesternness are you making monstrous or accentuating for the purpose of terror? That is a really great question. Um, <laughs> I, I think... I'm, I think I'm going to answer this question with like a shorter story <laughs> because I, there's things I want to say. And then I'm like, I shouldn't say that because spoilers. Um, but I think one of my favorite things we have played with so far is this thing around like uh, Midwestern nice and the way in which everyone kind of agrees to be pleasant and to to part of the way we build community is by being nice to each other and being you know 
reasonable. And that sometimes that means just looking the other way from things that you, if you looked too close at them, would maybe bother you. And there's a number of, uh, th- of things that we're playing with in the show that I just find really fun, where people choose to just not look that closely at things that if you looked more closely, you might find don't make any sense. Love that. Excellent answer. <laughs> Midwestern nice is something that my mother grappled with a lot when she was you know, growing up and like raising a family in, in Puerto Rico, like, which is like mm-hmm. a completely different environment from the Midwest. And it's very interesting to hear in Anuel, like when people are, for instance, when they're showing up at the house and bringing the casseroles in the first episode. Yep. yep. Yeah. It's, it's just this moment of like, oh, yeah, that thing where people are like, mm-hmm, this is fine. We're going to pretend like we've never had an argument before in our lives. This is fine. We're just we're just going to show up at your at the house and we're going to give you this thing and I'm not going to ask if you actually need it. I'm just going to give it to you. It's going to be great. You didn't ask for this, but here you go. <laughs> here, you go. <laughs> here you go. Uh there is a moment in season 2 that I'm super in love with where finally, you know, one of the characters says like, "Why didn't anybody ever?" I'm not going to fill in the end of that. And the answer is like, "Well, I mean, it wouldn't have been polite." Like, what we just never asked. We just never brought it up because, like, it would have it would have been kind of weird. So we never asked. <laughs> so, I, I, Eleanor, I want to talk about the land acknowledgement because I think that's really cool. Yeah, you and Jeffrey made the decision to do a land acknowledgement, right? Yeah, a statement in which you acknowledge the native people whose territory you occupy. And the only other podcast, the only other fiction podcast I ever heard do this um, is Australia's Love and Luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, by Aaron Kian and Lee Davis Dalburn, and um, how how did you how did you come to that decision to do a land acknowledgement? Yeah, so my understanding is that this is a thing that is much more common in Australia and in Canada than it is in the states, and I was introduced to it by a friend of mine who's a theater director who had gone and done some work in Canada where she got exposed to a lot of, uh, she got exposed to a couple of um, native arts groups and the performance work that they were doing and got exposed to it there. And the thing, I had this really interesting conversation with her when she came back from Canada where she said, you know, it's fascinating to walk into another cultural space and to realize that there's a thing in that cultural space that is totally normal that you have never experienced before that like for all of these Canadian artists in this particular theater community, I think, I think she was in Toronto um, that this was just a thing that you do. Like, of course you say this at the beginning of every performance, it's super normal. Everybody does it. And it's just part of how we make theater now. And I found that really fascinating. And to my mind, I think that is one of the things that as storytellers and culture makers, we have a lot of power over. We have a lot of control over the ability to do things and just say to the world, this is normal and this is how we do it and kind of see if the world decides to come along. And for me, this was, it was a, it was about that. It was about saying, I think this is a thing that should be normal, that we acknowledge this, that we think about the way that where we live has been part of the colonial experience. And one of the ways that you do that is by just bringing it up more regularly. Yeah, it feels so relevant to the story of Unwell. Also that. Given that, yeah. like... The story of the fictional Mount Absalom is bound up in, you know, revisionist history about Native Americans uh, and the colonial violence that was done to them or the, you know, the presumed attack on the white settlers that, you know, can't be verified. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, I, I mean, I'll say, like, that episode that uh, Jessica Best wrote with the with the pageant in it um, got written long before we put the land acknowledgement together. So, like, the, those two things like the plot point and the and the land acknowledgement kind of happened 
disconnected from each other. But I completely agree with you, David. I think it is relevant to the story we're telling. I think in many ways, Unwell is interrogating what the American story is. Like, what what does it mean to live in an American town? And part of that is that this land belongs to someone else. Like, that is a real part of that story. Um, I think as a white person in America, uh, in an attempt to be a good human, (laughs) um, it is important to me to interrogate the way in which my being here has meant that other people had to suffer. And that is a really difficult thing to look in the eye and actually think about regularly. Um, So we don't, you know, I don't think about that all day, every day. You can't. But I do, when we speak that land acknowledgement, it's a moment to reflect on that. And so, I, you know, I know some people who say, like, as a white person, like, my ancestors were slaveholders. That's not my family experience. My family experience is that my family, uh, my ancestors pushed ever westward to settle the wilderness and in doing so displaced an entire native people. And that is, you know, in my DNA. That's something that is forever part of me. And having a chance to speak that out loud, I think is really important. Um, So yeah. So let's take let's take a step back here. One second. What does gothic mean to you? Um, you know what? This is so funny, Ellie. I love that you're asking this because uh, I had not thought about that question super hard until you wrote your review of the show. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I'm so serious. Like, and 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 I want to say I think there are other people on our team who have thought really hard about that. So like Jim McDaniel is very deeply steeped in like gothic literature and horror as a genre and spends a lot of time thinking about like what does it mean to write about the monstrous and like he's super smart about that stuff so like I I often rely on other members of our team to be smarter about that space but legitimately I just hadn't thought about it that hard and then I read your review of the show and was like Oh, I got to up my game. (laughs) 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 Because you said some really smart things about it in a way that I found like really thoughtful and observant and found myself being like, so on the one hand, how did you know? Like, were you (laughs) secretly in the room when we talked about this? Um, And also like brought a layer to the conversation that I hadn't thought that hard about. So like, I actually went back and not to like fangirl on you, but like, I went back and reread your review before getting on the phone today. Uh, (laughs) The tables have turned. Yeah, exactly. Uh, (laughs) And so you spent some time in that review unpacking this idea of like the difference between horror and terror, which I think is so interesting. This idea of like, the word dread has shown up in my vocabulary a lot more of late. Good. Good word. <laughs> yeah, it's such a good word. The like creeping fear that you can't quite like you can't look at it. It's not there. You don't you can't point at it and be like, that's the thing I'm scared of. But it creeps in around the edges and you know that something is not quite right. Yeah, it's that it's that shadow you see in the corner of your eye. When you look straight at it, it's not there anymore. Yeah. 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 Uh I pretty recently actually read The Haunting of Hill House um, because I would, okay, so here's a thing I can admit. Um, I'm really bad at scary things. This is like a very weird thing for being a I'm producer sorry. of this project. You're um, <laughs> bad at scary I'm, things. I'm, yeah. You know who's similar is Jordan Cobb. Really? <laughs> yes. Jordan doesn't like scary stuff either. And then she goes and Megiana's Descending, which scares the bejesus out of me. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. When you're the one making it, you know what's scary. So it's not as, like, I know what's happening. So it's not as scary for me. Okay. Valid. <laughs> but I have all of these collaborators that I work with, not just 
at Heartlife, but I have all these various collaborators I work with who are really into scary things and are forever being like, you really need to watch this. But like, I'm the person who had to read an entire synopsis of Get Out before I was willing to see it. And like, that's not even that scary of a movie. (laughs) Um, But all these people in my life were like, you really got to watch The Haunting of Hill House. It's super relevant to your show, like all this stuff. And I could not bring myself to watch the Netflix show. So I decided to read the book instead. And it's an amazing book. (laughs) It's it's so beautiful. Yeah. Listeners, if you have not read Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, it is very different from the Netflix show, but it is so good. I, um, this is my sell on why you should read The Haunting of Hill House, the book. I think it's about lesbians. Yes. Yeah. It's about lesbians, right? I'm Hikey, not, yes. Yeah. It's, okay. it's about lesbians. <laughs> yeah. And I, I got like a little ways yeah. into it and I was like, why did no one tell me this book was about lesbians? I would have read it so much sooner. <laughs> anyway, but there's a thing that I feel like I got reading that book where like, as you're reading the book, also the main character's name is Eleanor. So that's compelling for me. Um, <laughs> so as you're reading the book, Eleanor in the book is... I just kept imagining, I was like, she doesn't seem that scared. Like, when you're in the situation, when you're the one in the haunted house, you're like, I can explain this away. There, I, I can handle this. I got, like, this, we got this. I know how to, what, you know, I'm going to come up with the reason why, like, this is all fine. And as an audience member, as, like, being once removed from the story, as just a little bit outside of it, you can see a slightly bigger picture and go... No, that's really, really terrifying, and you should not be there. And I think that's an interesting tension in this kind of like gothic story we're talking about, where it's like there's not an actual monster coming to get you. So the characters are all like, "No, it's fine. It's just like a little weird, but like it's fine." And as a reader or a listener, you're like, "I don't think it's fine. Yeah, yeah. I think you should probably get out of there." <laughs> you're just like, "No, yeah, run, right." Exactly. <laughs> It's like, um, you're going to probably die there, but you should, you don't seem to realize that. And I think that's a really fun, and I use that in a particular kind of way, but a fun tension of experience in a story like that and like, and sort of the way in which, you know, we kind of make, as humans, we get ourselves in a lot of situations where we go, okay, I got this. I can totally handle this rather than recognizing when things are actually like pretty bad. Yep. You're not wrong. Yeah. I was not expecting that answer to like quote me. (laughs) So I'm just gonna. Yeah. It's interesting. I am, I am not by any means the person on our team who's the expert on scary stuff. And I think, um, it's part of why I love so much the team that I work with. Like it's, I just think it's so much fun to work on a team full of people where everybody brings different stuff to the table and has different stuff that they're good at. And it makes the work really interesting and surprising and like so much more interesting than it would be if I made it all by myself. But I am a person who is easily scared. And so it's interesting to kind of like temper that with these other people on the team who are like, who are like, no, let's have more monsters. (laughs) So yeah. So in Gothic fiction, there's this notion of the picturesque ruin, right? A ruined castle, Mm -hmm. its grounds strewn with headless statues, overgrown with ivy, as a place that was once lovely that has now decayed. And that's this major theme in Unwell, right? The Fenwood house is falling apart. Abby is studying how the region is falling apart. Dot is falling apart. And Lily also is exhibiting the potential for some kind of breakdown. What what is the show trying to explore in this notion of decay? What what has decayed? That's interesting. So one of the things that I think is often wound up in that, and we talked earlier about the like weird true American Midwestern town kind of archetype. <clears throat> and I actually I think a lot of that archetype gets tied up with this idea of the broken down, the failing, the nothing works here, there are no jobs. There's, you know, I read I read a lot of articles about 
small towns in the Midwest as we were getting into this project. And almost all of them have this tone of, there is nothing here. These people are stuck and there's no reason to stay in this town. And I, I mean, I literally remember reading this article right before we started writing season one that like starts and ends with a bunch of really of like older men who used to work at the factory that's now shut down. And they are all sitting in this like back room of a 7-Eleven drinking stale coffee. And it was like so depressing. And I actually think we were interested in trying to push a little against that in this idea that this is a town that's been here for a long time and keeping the town running, you know, it can be a struggle, but there are actually a number of people in this town who want to be there and are excited to be there and that this community has aspects to it that are really vibrant and that there is a reason to be in Mount Absalom. There's not, you know, there's not this underlying, well, I guess we should all go move somewhere where there's better jobs. Like, um, we haven't, I don't know that we've gotten into, uh, I don't know that this has been revealed yet, but I, I don't mind sharing this. Like, there is the Solaric Bottling Works that makes celery soda is still based in Mount Absalom. And there's a pretty, you know, we get to later in the season, attend the celery festival and see sort of what that's all about. And I think we were interested in exploring the tension around both what it means to, you know, live in a hundred, 200 year old house that is like, like an old lady that constantly needs taken care of. Um, and also to live in a place where like, there is stuff there and there are reasons to be there. Um, Abby is in Mount Absalom, not to so much document a failure as study a town that is like still doing okay. And so why, why is this town kind of carrying on despite the fact that demographically it looks similar to a lot of other towns that have kind of spiraled the drain. So yeah, I think there's some themes around that in the show, but I'm really interested in sort of exploring both sides of it, of like that decay also, like that, the, the, the history and the oldness of the place can be decay, but it can also be beauty and it can be history and it can be community. So like, what's that, what's the tension around that? I grew up in a house that was built in 1830. And let me tell you, they make some weird noises. <laughs> Since you mentioned, talk about houses making weird sounds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh -huh. I want to talk about the sound design. Yeah. So uh, David noted to me that there's this one moment in the first episode where Lily steps on an especially squeaky stair uh, and says, you, yeah. I remember you, you snitch. <laughs> and that just really uh, sold us both on the idea that Ryan had developed this entire physicalized house. So what was the process of building the character of Fenwood House? Yeah, uh, Ryan Sheely deserves an enormous amount of credit for all the things I'm about to talk about. So Ryan Sheely is our lead sound designer, uh, and he did a lot of the, really all of the work to kind of set the um, the vocabulary for what this world sounds like. And then we have a team of sound designers who work on various episodes who come in and get sort of that library of sounds and context for how that all comes together. Um, there's sort of a sound specific show Bible and work within that language. And then often if there's a new location that's not in the house, whichever sound designer is originating that location gets to kind of make more of that up themselves. So Ryan spent a lot of time uh, putting the, the house together um, in between sort of the point where we finished writing season one and we finished recording season one in the studio with the with the cast. So 
one of the things he did that is like just one of my favorite tools. Uh, Ryan created a tour of the house that is for our internal use for sound designers, where we have uh, floor plans for the house. We had a, a visual artist we worked with who helped us uh, draw the floor plans of the house for each level and like how big the rooms are and where they are next to each other. And Ryan created this little video where there's a dot and you can see the dot walking around from room to room and passing between spaces. And when you listen to it, you hear how it sounds as you move from room to room. And it's full of all kinds of delightful, like, moments in it where, you know, Ryan will say, all right, we're now in the living room. And what you're hearing in this room is you're hearing a ceiling fan. And then if I walk over here to the corner and you hear the noise of the thing pick up and the needle drop over here in the corner is the record player. If you want to interact with that, that lives in this part of the room. And then he walks, you see the little dot move and he walks out again. And he's like, this is what this door sounds like when you open and close it and so on. So he did just an enormous amount of work and also to his credit, spent a lot of time go, going through all of the scripts and the things that our team had written and finding the details of, okay, so you've established that there's a swing on the porch. So we need to decide which of the porches is the one that has the swing on it. We have to establish that there and then we have to be consistent about that and kind of creating the map of what the house looks like so that we can build that consistency and that auditory experience. Every time I hear this described to me, my brain is blown again. Like this is the third time I've heard this and it it never gets old. <laughs> That's astounding to me. <laughs> yeah, Ryan's really good at what he does. Um, and one of the other things that I've learned from, I've learned a lot from listening to Ryan talk about his work and, and from watching him work. One of my other favorite things that I learned from Ryan early on was that it is so important in audio to have clarity around when a person moves from one space to another space. So in science fiction, this is pretty easy because like in a spaceship, all of your doors make really loud noises. And like in our fair city, there was a lot of like doors that went like door opening door closing so like it's really clear when you're moving from one space to another mostly voiced by jeffrey <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um because jeffrey could be like oh i'll just whip out my mic and do another couple door opening and closings um but unwell is a much more real environment and so i think ryan when we first started was like oh my god guys like how do i solve this problem but so you, if I say it, you'll, you may start to notice that like there is a door between almost every room in the Fenwood house and those doors all have different sounds and they're not quite as overt as science fiction doors. But like I can tell you that there is a swinging door between the kitchen and the hallway that is one of those doors that you would see like in a restaurant that swings both directions. So that when you pass through it, it has like a little bit of a bounce back. And there's a screen door between the kitchen and the back porch that has a particular kind of slam. And Ryan brought a lot of specificity to that. So even though it's never like overtly explained, it is a thing that your subconscious brain can say, oh, they moved to a new room. Like this person just walked from one room to another and fill in the reality of how we're moving from space to space. Eleanor, what are you afraid of? <laughs> what fears motivate you? <laughs> oh, David, that's such a big question. <laughs> yeah, I know. He says super creepily. <laughs> yeah, good work. Nice. Well done. Um, so like I said earlier, I uh, am a person who has a very hard time watching scary things. Like I don't watch a lot of horror movies. Um, I, as a child, was deeply afraid of the narrator in the Twilight Zone. So like any movie that involves like the camera pans left and there's just some person there who wasn't supposed to be there nope, can't handle it. Too scary for me. I can't, I, nope, not, can't do it. Um, so, which is funny because like, that's not, it's 
Yeah. Uh, it's real simple, but, but that idea of their, like, I find that in storytelling, very unsettling and very like deeply, uh, frightening the idea of coming, being in a space that you think is safe and then like turning and realizing that there's something that you didn't know was there that now is. And, uh, the way in which that threatens, sort of what you think is true is totally terrifying. Um, so that's a thing I find super frightening uh, in stories. Um, in like actual life, I mean, I'll tell you, I this is relevant to this story. I find memory loss to be one of the most terrifying real things in this world. Um, so I, like many people, have uh, family members who, as they have aged, have lost a lot of their faculties and their ability to remember their families and themselves and their own experiences. And that is a thing that I I find deeply, deeply terrifying um, and surprisingly ubiquitous. Again, that like uh, if you talk to people in your life, almost everyone has an experience of having someone that they know who who has gone through that. And as a generation, so I'm an older millennial, right? I'm I'm in my 30s and right on the kind of like older end of that millennial category. And as we all get older and our parents inevitably get older, the reality is that uh, a large the, the vast majority of us are going to at some point have someone we love very very dearly who is going to lose hold of their own capacity to remember things. And that is so scary. <laughs> it's just really, really hard. And it's and it's really, really hard to imagine how you prepare yourself for that experience. Deeply discomforting. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I have to say that like uh, this this is touched on briefly, not non-spoilers, but this is touched on briefly in episode six with that one scene mm-hmm. and it was terrifying it i actually like i paused the audio when i got there and i was just like oh <laughs> that's scary and i don't like it cool yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um, moving on <laughs> yeah and i think it is in part you know it's like we're all scared of death of course we are but like we have eons of uh stories and culture and like stuff that we use to interrogate our fear of death and like yeah we as a culture are terrible at it but like fine we've been we've been terrible at it for a long time i think there's a way in which as modern medicine has gotten better and people are living longer that alzheimer's and memory loss as we age is a thing that like we don't talk about it people don't talk about it the in the same way that we don't talk about dying and, but it happens to everybody. It happens to everybody. Like not everybody loses their memory. Not everybody gets Alzheimer's, but everybody knows somebody like everyone has a family member or a person they were close to who has gone through this. So why don't we talk about it more? Like, like, like this is so deeply part of the human experience and is going to be part of the human experience of watching all of our baby boomer parents get older, that the fact that we don't interrogate it more is something that I, I get kind of mad about. Like I, I, I need tools for this. So, because it's coming, it's, it's like, I, I see it. Com- it's coming. I know we're going to, I'm going to have to deal with it someday. So like, where are my tools? Like the extent to which we are none of us prepared for any of this. Yeah. Yeah. Did you read the abstract of that study that linked Alzheimer's to gum health? Have you been <laughs> compulsively brushing your teeth a lot more since you read that? 
because one of us has, and he's got two thumbs, and his name is David. <laughs> That's really funny. I mean, there's a way in which, like, I don't know that it's really hard to know where it comes from, and it's like, and I, so I recently, I um, there's a uh, an artist in Chicago who a little while back uh, wrote a play called Tangles and Plaques, which was a a play about memory loss and Alzheimer's. And one of the things that she it was produced at the Neo Futurists, and uh, one of the things that she said in there was she talked about how when you start suffering from Alzheimer's, um, you, there's no cure. There's no there's no way to to stop it. But there are ways that we understand to slow the effects and to like treat treat it so that it doesn't progress as quickly. But that the metaphor she used was that um, if your memory is a library and Alzheimer's is a disease that is like lighting a match at one end of the stacks and the only thing you can do is slow how fast it burns, it will burn you will lose the whole library at some point. It's just a matter of how quickly. And now all I can think of is Wolf 359. Okay. You did ask me what scared me. I'm, I mean, it, like... I know, but I didn't expect to, like, also be scared and kind of bummed. Yep. No, legit. Did you think I was going to say spiders? Like, come on. <laughs> Listen. Spiders are terrifying. Uh, spiders can just yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Stay outside. Spiders, you're excused. <laughs> Eleanor Hyde, thank you so much for coming on Radio Drama Revival. This was a delight and a half. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me talk about my show for a whole hour. Come on back anytime. I will happily come back anytime. <laughs> You can support Heartlife NFP and everything they do by visiting their Patreon at patreon.com slash heartlifenfp. You can support our work on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radiodrama. Visit our website at radiodramarevival.com, where you can visit our marvelous store. That's radiodramarevival.com slash shop. And now, your moment of will. Hey friends, last week I asked you which celebrity was once a mayor in Ohio. This was pretty wild for me to find out. It turns out that in the 70s, the mayor of Cincinnati was Jerry Springer. Yes, of the Jerry Springer show. I'm going to read you an excerpt of this page on him from ohiohistorycentral.org, which I'll also link in the show notes. A member of the Democratic Party, Springer went into politics and worked as a campaign aide for Senator Robert Kennedy. After Kennedy's assassination, Springer practiced law at a Cincinnati, Ohio law firm, but he soon returned to politics. In 1971, Cincinnati voters elected him to the city council as an at-large member. He remained on the council from 1972 to 1977, when he became mayor of Cincinnati. Springer won the mayor's seat with the largest margin of victory in Cincinnati's history. However, his reputation was damaged when some of his personal moral failings uh, did some research on this. He hired a sex worker, revealed by the local press. Springer's time as mayor ended in 1981. Then, 10 years later, Springer wound up making The Jerry Springer Show in 1991. So, back before that TV history, Jerry Springer was the mayor of Cincinnati. And hey, listener, let's all remember that everyone is multifaceted. And now it's time for the credits. This podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C., which is the unceded territory of the Piscataway Indian Nation and the Piscataway Kanoi Tribe. Our theme music is Danger Diggy Doo by DJ Stranger Danger. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer and associate interviews producer is Will Williams, last seen investigating the old Lutheran church that Pastor Nielsen says was full of bats. But when Will went in there, they found bats all right. Bats with Will's face. Well, yeah, David. Haven't you ever been to a family reunion? Hey, Aunt Mary. Our senior interviews producer is Eli McElveen, last seen following a trail of firefly lights, watching them swarm and form and reform into a blinking sign that reads, Eat at Sue's. 
Sue could not be reached for comment. Our associate producer is Sean Howard, last seen aboard an ancient creaking steamboat that seemed to flicker in and out of reality as it trundled its way across the swollen banks of the Mississippi. Our researcher is Heather Cohen, last seen ignoring the repeated slam of the screen door, untouched by human hands, on a windless day. It just does that sometimes, says Heather. Our submissions editors are Elena Fernandez-Collins and Rashika Rao, last seen heading into the woods, their arms full of sticks, their bags full of bricks, their eyes full of fire, and their hearts full of some unknowable, terrible purpose. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhouse, great and wondrous father of the corn. See him wave in the breeze. See him call to you. Yes, run your arms outstretched. Yes, catch the sun's heat on your body. Yes, drink up the water. Yes, you are the corn now. Yes, yes. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome. <laughs>